This morning we are continuing in this series entitled We Believe. And in this series what we're doing is we're taking some of the earliest church creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, what's on those little bookmarks and so forth. We're walking through it and we're using those to talk about the core beliefs of the Christian faith as we make our way to Christmas morning. So as you open your Bibles to Psalm 104, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer again this morning. God, we are grateful for this time together. We are grateful, Father, for the word of God, that it is living and active. And I pray this morning that this atmosphere of worship, of fellowship, of adoration would continue. I ask that it is your voice that's spoken and heard this morning that you would be at work in the lives of your people as only you can be today. Open our eyes, our hearts, our lives to the truths about the great and mighty God that we worship. In your magnificent name we pray, amen. This morning we get to talk about God. What do people mean when they say they believe in God? As it happens, most Americans still say that they believe that God exists or a God exists or some sort of spirit or higher power exists. But when they say that, when we say that, what do we actually mean? Do we as people, do we even as Christians believe in the God of the Bible as revealed to us in Scripture? We might even ask the question, well, what is it that I need to know about God so that I can believe in and understand and have relationship with the God that's been revealed to us in Scripture? Now, it turns out that there are a lot of studies that are done that sort of wrestle with this question quite often on a yearly basis and different organizations over and over and over again. And and so it's not hard to find some information on this about what we mean when we say we believe in God. One recent large study that came out early this year showed us that belief in the God of the Bible is actually decreasing among Americans in general. Of those polled, 80% said that they believed that a God exists. Only 56% believed that the God of the Bible existed. And 31% believed in some kind of higher power or spiritual force that exists. But it turns out that the younger you are in our culture, the more open you are to the reality that God might exist, the more you want there to be a God. So sometimes these stats and headlines make us a little bit frustrated and depressed, but guys, it's a wide open door for the church to step back into our culture and make the case about the existence of God and who He really is. So this morning, with what we're doing together, we're going to ask the question, what is it the church has decided is at the very core of what the Bible teaches about God? What is it that Christians believe based on Scripture about God and who He is? This is the clause that we're going to talk about this morning. And last week we read the whole thing together. And this morning I want us to just read this one clause together. Again, coming from the Apostles' Creed, let's say this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The Nicene Creed 
says, we believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Here's what we're going to get a chance to talk about this morning. First of all, God really does exist. This is not just something that we have decided is a psychologically useful belief. It kind of helps me hold myself together. It helps me make sense of things personally, but that doesn't mean he exists. That's not what Christians believe. We don't believe that he's some sort of morally useful belief, that we use him to talk about what is morally right or wrong, but he may or may not actually exist. That's not what Christians believe. God really does exist. We also see this in what we've said. God is perfect in love and care. God is perfect in love and care. God is great in power. He is almighty. And then we're going to discover something that might surprise some of us. God designed creation to lead us to him. Some beautiful things the church has encapsulated in this one very simple phrase. Let's read in the book of Psalms, chapter 104. There are a handful of chapters throughout Scripture that are creation narratives. When we think in the Bible of God creating the universe and how the Bible talks about that, we often think of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Well, it turns out there are several passages in Scripture that actually deal specifically with God's creation and what it means and who He is and what He has done. Psalm 104 is one of those chapters I want us to read the first nine verses from Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. Under the inspiration of, script, of the Holy Spirit, Scripture actually speaks of tectonic plate movement. Did you know that? Verse 9, you set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. We're going to read a few sections of Psalm 104, but it's like this, verse after verse after verse, the glory of God and the majesty of what He has done in all of creation. And as we read through this, what we've read through the rest of the chapter, what it does is it paints this picture of a great and of an almighty God who has created all things. And it's more than just you spun the universe into existence and then let everything go on its way. It's so much more than just talking about a God who is so great, he is distant and he is disconnected from everything. When Psalm 104 and the rest of Scripture talks about a great and almighty God who created things, it also speaks of an almighty God who stewards things. It's creation and it is stewardship. 
It is direct and intimate contact with all of creation. God in a passage of scripture like this throughout the rest of scripture is not depicted as distant or unconcerned with the day-to-day workings of water and grass and mountains and goats and humans. He stewards it. He's involved. He's connected with creation. Talking about God's grand power and all that he has done does not lead you and me as followers of Jesus Christ to see him as distant. But instead, what it does is it fills us with awe and with love and with relationship. Notice how the psalmist opens this chapter about creation. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Notice how the psalmist finishes chapter 104. In verse 35, at the very end of it, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. In fact, let's read those last few verses. Beginning in verse 31 of Psalm 104, the psalmist says this, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. See, this is curious language that unless you've read these passages, you're not accustomed to. And we're going to read it a few times. That when God created the universe, there was joy. And when God sees creation, there's joy. And when we reflect on God's power in creation, we find reason to rejoice. It's a beautiful detail. May the Lord rejoice in his works who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. Notice the intimacy and relationship that is pulled out of the psalmist when he thinks about creation. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him. May everything that is in me that I think and that I do be pleasing to this God, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is beautiful stuff. The psalmist sees, and throughout this chapter, does his best to explain what he sees in his awe of God and all of creation. And he sees glory, and he sees might, and he sees power. So what that leads him to is the point where he sees a reason to praise this God, to love this God, to be in right relationship with this God. He finishes this meditation by saying, I want to be right before him. May the meditation of my heart be pleasing to him. I don't want to be a sinner in rebellion against this God. Notice how intimate it becomes at the end of this chapter. It's amazing. May God be blessed, and may God be praised. So as we go through a passage like this, as we see this in Scripture, we find ourselves pulling together a handful of rather surprising character traits into God because we start talking about this almighty power, the one and only power who can create everything that is visible and invisible. But then we're also starting to see a God who desires personal relationship with his creation. So we're pulling together a God who is mighty in power, a God who is good, a God who is close to us and to his creation. 
And when the Christian church expresses this incredible combination of traits, it likes to use the word Father. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. It pulls together. He's amazing. And what would otherwise be contradictory thoughts about God, but for us, it means He's Father. Guys, we call God Father. And we, as the Church of Jesus Christ, have been doing this for 2,000 years because Scripture teaches us that we have this kind of relationship with the Creator of all things. Listen to how Jesus talks to His disciples in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. There in Matthew 6, He takes some time to teach His disciples, those who were there with Him, to teach us how to pray. And here's how the Lord's Prayer begins. Our Father, who is in heaven, may your name be hallowed, honored, blessed in all of the world. Jesus Christ, my Messiah, the Son of God, teaches us, you can go ahead and when you pray to that God, you can go ahead and call him Father. Isn't that incredible? You can go ahead and draw him that close to you. And when you start to pray, call him Father. So we follow in the line of Jesus Christ. And we pray the way that he has taught us to pray when we call God Father. At another point in the life of Jesus Christ, he is right on the edge of the cross, his torture, his crucifixion, his death, and then his resurrection. He's praying in the garden with his disciples. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, it goes like this. And Jesus said, and Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So it's not just Father, it's Abba. We can actually pray with Jesus Christ and we can speak to dad. Isn't that astounding that the God described in Psalm 104, the God described in Genesis chapter 1, the God who names every star by name, says, you know what? When you talk to me, you can call me dad. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. As we talk about this, God our fathers, we use this language as we see it in Scripture. I want to make sure we understand something about this. Throughout Scripture, as it talks about God's care for us, Scripture will use both male and female imagery to speak of how God takes care of us. Quite often, especially in the Old Testament prophets. God cares for us like a mother cares for her children. God gives birth to his people. He gives birth to his will for his people. In Old Testament wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs, the wisdom of God is personified as she. God is not gendered the way that you and I are, but we call him Father. Because we're following in the line of Scripture, and when Scripture talks to God, 
When Jesus prays to God, when he teaches us how to pray to God, we use the term Father. So we understand God as our first Father. And here's what I mean by that. We understand God as the first Father. Our Heavenly Father is the source of what we learn about what it means to be a good father mother, a parent. He is the source of that perfect standard of love and care and sacrifice for his children. Now, that's important because oftentimes what happens to us, and this is something that somehow is, is kind of hardwired inside of our psychology, it's hardwired into our relationships, Oftentimes, we will struggle with God because we had difficult or have difficult relationships with our earthly fathers. And what happens almost by instinct to us is we take that earthly example of our earthly father and we project all of those difficulties and frustrations and confusions and we project them onto God, our heavenly father. And we think, well, he must be like that then. No, no pressure, dads. <laughs> but this is actually a common path that the human heart takes. And it's a common complaint and difficulty the human heart makes that when we have those kinds of broken and difficult relationships here on earth, we then filter our relationship with God through those earthly relationships. But what the Christian is learning to do as we speak this creed, as we read through Scripture about who this God is, is we're learning to reverse the order. We're learning to see Him for who He is in His perfect love and care for His children and for His creation. And from that, then we learn what it means as parents, as fathers, as mothers to relate with others. And when we do it that way, as we understand God as the first father, we learn to understand him better and we learn to understand our lives with each other better as well. There's a passage again in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. As Jesus actually talks about this kind of relationship, and he's going to talk about asking God for things, and he's going to relate it to how we interact with our earthly fathers. He says in Matthew chapter 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being a bunch of knuckleheads, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Right? When you are good, when we are good as parents, God is perfect. When we in our sin and evil don't know how to do that right, God is still perfect in His love, in His care, for his children. No matter how or when and how many ways those relationships get strained or broken in the lives of so many people, there is still a perfectly good heavenly father. Isn't that incredible? So the early church 
as they formulate this, as they pull this out of Scripture, and as they begin to repeat it to themselves almost 2,000 years ago, I believe in God the Father Almighty. They're learning things about God. They're in a culture that has taught them very different things about what it means to be a father, about what it means to be a dad. But now they're relearning that term father. They're relearning that relationship about who our father God is. Inside of the Greco-Roman context, it was actually very common for fathers to be able to rule their households with an iron fist, right? Now, maybe some of you dads would love for that to be the case. But in the Greco-Roman world, it was the case. They had the kind of cultural and legal authority over their family that even in some cases would extend to the ability to have some of their children's or their wife put to death because they didn't do what he wanted them to do. So you get this very heavy-handed, very patriarchal, very power-driven system that that early church is being saved out of. And so if you're a Christian... 150 AD in northern Africa and your entire culture is Roman and your family is Roman and that's the world that you lived in but now you've become a child of God and now you're repeating with brothers and sisters in Christ I believe in God the Father Almighty you're saying something different you're relearning what fatherhood means because of who God is so they had a lot to relearn about God their Father, and there's a lot for us to relearn often about what it means for God to be our Father. Our Father God is present, and He is involved. As opposed to the epidemic of fatherlessness that I firmly believe is starting to tear our culture apart at the seams. When we say God is Father, we're talking about a God who is present, and who is involved, as opposed to fathers who skip out on responsibility to wives and mothers and children. When we say this, we're talking about our Father God who is good and who is caring, as opposed to, if the statistics are true, the epidemic of neglect and abuse amongst the American families, including those inside of the church. Maybe that's what many of us are used to when we talk about Father. But now we're talking about our Father God, who is good and who is perfectly caring. Our Father God is wise and He is powerful. As opposed to the common caricature of dads as doofuses. If you watch TV, if you see commercials, nine out of ten dads agree, no, nine out of ten dads are the idiots. Our Father God is wise and He is powerful. So friends, we pull all this together and we understand it in terms of what we confess when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. We're learning to understand God as our Abba, that term of endearment, our Dad, our Father. And in that, we find stability and we find comfort And we find guidance and we find reason to praise Him in all things. Bless the Lord, O my soul, right? So we believe that He is Father. 
and that he is the Father Almighty. I want to go back to Psalm 104, read another section of this passage of Scripture to talk about our Almighty God. Beginning in verse 24, the chapter goes like this. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and the Leviathan, which you formed to play in the oceans. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. You renew the face of the ground. When we study God's creation, we see his wisdom and his care, and we see his almighty power over all things. When our ancient Greek brothers and sisters would speak this creed in their Greek language, when they would use the word almighty, the word that they used there just simply meant he was all ruling. God ruled over everything. When our ancient Latin brothers and sisters would read the creed in their language, they would use the word for omnipotent. Omnipotent means all-powerful. And the big idea is this, when we talk about God Almighty, that God has power over all things in creation. God has power over all things in creation. He is the power that created it all. He is the power that sustains it all. God remains involved and connected with his creation and with his human creation. You may remember one of the passages that we read last week from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. And speaking of faith and who God is, the writer of Hebrews says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the one that we cannot see, God himself, he is the one who made everything that we see. He is the power that made the universe. We can add to that a passage of Scripture from Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, as Paul is talking about who Jesus Christ is as God in his greatness. He says this, For by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So notice again that language, visible and invisible. It's what's in the Nicene Creed, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, right out of the scriptural text itself. So guys, Scripture reveals God. Now this is important for us. Scripture reveals that God is the only divine power that exists. There are other spiritual beings who have certain kinds of power, but none of them are like the power that God has. Christians do not believe in a universe where God and Satan have about the same amount of power and they're vying for creation between each other and eventually by a stroke of luck, God might win. 
That's not the universe that Christians believe in. Satan may have power, but it is not almighty power. It is not God's power. So let's think through some of these things because it's important for us to clarify what do we mean when we say, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, because there are a lot of other options out there. There are a lot of other religious options that are just kind of floating around in our atmosphere, philosophical options about who God is. So let's make sure we're clarifying who we are talking about. So there really are other religions that teach, several other religions that teach that there are a lot of deities out there demigods who are fighting for allegiance and fighting for certain kind of influence among human beings and who may have some kind of power over some things some of the time. That was the world that the early Christian church was born into. That Greek pantheon, the Roman pantheon, you've got all these capricious and difficult to deal with gods and they have some power over some things some of the time. That's not the god the Christian church believes in. There are some religions still at work among us today in a lot of ways that teach that there really is this duality of supernatural power in the universe. If you can sort of imagine that yin and yang emblem, right? The dark and the light, just always back and forth with each other. Sometimes the light is great, sometimes the darkness is great, but we have a duality of power between light and darkness and good and evil. And the universe is just sort of caught in the middle of all of that. Some of you might know it by Star Wars theology, right? The light and the dark. It's not what Christians affirm when we say we believe in God, the Father Almighty. Islam and other religions, as a matter of fact, teach an all-powerful and almighty God, but one who is disconnected and capricious and judgmental, and you will never know if you're standing with that God is right or not. That is a God of power without a God of the gospel. That is a God of power without a God of mercy. That's not the kind of God that we believe in. Modern atheism, modern materialism teaches that there just is nothing in the universe except, as one person once put it a long time ago, just atoms in the void. There's nothing else but material stuff. So that just very simply means there's no God, no angels, no spirit. You have no spirit and no soul. And interestingly enough, none of you have minds. Did you know that? Nobody has a mind. We all have brains and we're flesh computers, but we don't have minds. And in that worldview, the most powerful set of forces in this world are described by physics, chemistry, and mathematics. And that's it. A few years ago, a group of sociologists put together this great big long study and they answered a really interesting question. What do young American evangelical Christians believe about God? And they surveyed thousands of young American evangelicals for several years. What do you believe about God? How does your view about God actually affect your life? What do you think God is like? And they decided that these American evangelicals believed in what they called, and some of you may want to write this down, believed in what they called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, stick with me. I even have a picture in a minute to help sort of clarify this. 
The belief is this. God exists, and he created the universe, but when he did that, he stepped back and he let it go. And now he just wants everybody to be nice to each other, and he wants everybody to be happy. That's the common belief among American evangelicals in the United States of America, according to this great big long study. So he created things. He's not really, he's really not all that judgy unless you're really, really bad. If you're Hitler, then maybe you're going to go to the bad place. But other than that, he just wants everybody to be happy and he wants everybody to just be nice to each other. So instead of using that phrase moralistic, therapeutic, deism over and over and over again, here's how they talk about it. They see most American Christians believe that God is a great big golden retriever in the sky. Just wants everybody to be happy. Now, does that make you feel good? You just look at that picture and you smile, right? <laughs> Heather once said, and I thought this was brilliant, she said, I think God made dogs just so that you have something to smile at all the time. God's just a great big golden retriever in the sky. Just wants everybody to be happy. Just wants everybody to get along. C.S. Lewis once put it like this. He said, in the end, most of us don't want a heavenly father. We want a heavenly grandfather. We want the guy who's just going to kind of dote on us, fill us with sugar, give us money, and send us home. <laughs> Never tell us we're wrong, right? But when we actually pay attention to who God is, he is so much more than all of that. He is able to combine these astounding character traits that otherwise we don't know how they go together. A God of power and might and wisdom and glory and love and forgiveness and mercy and intimacy. Our God is so much more than all of that. So guys, Scripture reveals God to be the greatest possible power, to be almighty, to have all might, with no contenders and no lack at all in his power. Here's one way of sort of thinking about how that, it's, it's an analogy of how that might work. There's going to be a baseball player every single season who has the best batting average in any given season. It is the best that season, but it is not the best batting average possible. Does that make sense? In 2018, a dude by the name of Mookie Betts, and there's a name for you, Mookie Betts, batted 346, and that was the best batting average in 2018. That still means he was successful only about one out of three times at bat. That's not the best possible batting average, which is just a flat 1,000, but it was the best among his peers. We understand God's power to be the best possible. Not that it's the best among many who have the same kind of power, but his is different. His is the best possible. He alone is almighty. And this, as the creed tells us, is the almighty Father who created heaven and earth. I want to flip back a few pages in the Psalms, the Psalm chapter 19, and read a few verses that are about this specifically. Psalm chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, and it goes like this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. 
day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. It's rising. Notice that joy again when we're talking about creation. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. No other power than God can do that. It's not just that he created it, but the psalmist tells us he filled it with himself so that when we get to know it, we become in awe of God. Isn't that incredible? So all creation tells us about God, right? From galaxies to earthworms, God has filled all of it with information. Notice that language in Psalm 19, words, knowledge about who he is. And it's not just the psalmist. It's not just someone who likes writing poetry about God. Paul says this about it in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For his, speaking of God's invisible attributes, the thing we can't see with our eyes, namely, notice this, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the law of Moses. Ever since Mark wrote the first version of the Gospels. Now we see, he didn't say that. He has been clearly seen since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, meaning those who reject God, are without excuse. Another passage in the Old Testament that deals again specifically with creation itself comes out of the book of Job. Job and his friends have been wrestling with Job's pain and difficulty. They've been wrestling with God and who he is and where he is and what he is doing. And then near the end of that book, God just steps in and he starts to talk to Job and his friends. And this is among the first set of things that God says to Job and his friends in chapter 38. It goes like this. Now, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. You gotta love that. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. There it is again. Were you there, Job? When I laid the foundations of the earth and I spun the universe to existence and every angelic creature sang and shouted for joy. This is what creation is. The more we see it, the more we understand these kinds of things about God. We mentioned last week that throughout the history of the church, um, the church for all kinds of reasons continues to write creeds and confessions of faith. It's not just these two that you have on that little bookmark, but throughout the centuries, when the church spreads to a new culture, to a new language, to a new context, when they face opposition to the faith, 
The church is going to write a new set of confessions and creeds in order to keep themselves rooted inside of things like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the truths of Scripture. The church continues to do this. In 1561, one was written called the Belgic Confession. The Belgic Confession was used by churches in northern Europe, and when it was written, it happened to be a, a part of Europe, a piece of European culture where science was being born. So in 1561, the Belgic Confession contains this phrase. It says that nature is, before our eyes, is a most beautiful book in which all created things, where great or small, are as letters showing the invisible things of God to us, pulled right out of Scripture, and they're confessing, when we look at nature, we read the things of God. We can't look at God the same way we can look at nature but when we do, we begin to read the things of God. So guys, this is part of the story of the Christian church and Christian history that's just not always talked about that often or it's often misunderstood when it is. It turns out that Christians through the centuries are actually pressed into scientific work and research so that learning the things of creation, they would learn more about God. It's actually a drive inside of the history of the Christian church. We're actually taught in Scripture. And, again, you're not going to hear this very often, but here I am. That's why you're here. To hear stuff you don't hear anywhere else. That's probably not why you're here. We're taught in Scripture, and it's confirmed through the best scientific work today that the universe itself is not the result of mindless, random, unguided, chaotic processes. We believe in a God who is our Father and He is Almighty and He created heaven and earth. And it turns out to be, <laughs> it turns out to be true. There are a lot of arguments for the existence of God, many of which I find sound and I find persuasive. There's one I want to talk about this morning very quickly because it sort of pulls together several of these thoughts about this Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and it's one that right now has a lot of work being done inside of it, and it is the argument from intelligent design. So I just want to talk about this briefly with you, and it has some really unique power to it. On its most basic and fundamental level, this argument has so much common sense to it that anyone can see it's true. And I'll explain that in just a minute. So on one level, it's actually really, really straightforward. On another level, it is currently pressing all kinds of Christians who are in the sciences into, deeper into their work to see the handiwork of God, the argument from intelligent design. And, and here's how it goes. The first thought is this. Objects that display design and function are the products of intelligence. Objects that display design and function are the products of intelligence. When I was a little kid, it was fascinating to run across an arrowhead, right? You're running around in the dirt, and there are trillions of rocks all over the place and in your hair and in your shoes, but you stop for the one rock that looks like an arrowhead. Why? Because when you pick that thing up, you see design and you see function. You know that somebody, a mind, a long time ago, 
picked up one kind of rock and another kind of rock and used the second rock to form the first rock into this little arrowhead. And then they strapped it on the tip of a shaft and ate dinner. It's an object that displays design and function. And so you just immediately know a mind did this, an intelligence did this. Well, that's really straightforward. That's simple. Well, it turns out that the universe itself and even biological life displays the same kind of evidence of design and function. From the immense complexity of what happens in the center of a star to what's going on currently inside of every cell of your body, it displays design and function. So the conclusion is actually quite straightforward. Therefore, the universe and biological life itself is the product of intelligence. If I learn how to look at this, what am I going to see? There's no other explanation for this than that a mind did this. And then you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, we know what happens next in this argument. The only intelligence capable of doing all of this is God. We believe God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. All of this fits this pattern that we see in Scripture in our belief about who God is. The more we understand about creation, the more we see God and are in awe of Him, the more we resonate with Psalm 104 where we begin and end our praise of creation by talking about how blessed and glorious and magnificent our God is. So guys, our God, the God who actually exists and who has revealed Himself to us, is our Father, He is Almighty, and He is the Creator of all things. And He wants to be in relationship with every single one of us. With all of these other options that we see about God, all these other religious or philosophical options, every single time we're left with a God that is just no good for us. A God who may only be half of reality, never strong enough to overcome evil. A God who may just constantly be capricious and unpredictable and angry, and we will never be sure of our standing with him. A God who may just be an oversimplistic projection of ourselves onto the sky who can never really do anything of any might and power and consequence at all. Or maybe even a God who's just nothing at all leaving us in a deterministic universe where there's nothing but input and output and will to power. The God who actually exists, the God that we confess, is our Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and He has used His power to show us mercy. He is a God of might, and He is a God of gospel, of good news. He is all-powerful, but He is also all-loving and merciful to whoever believes in Him. And it is only that kind of mixture of power and love that can give me what I need most deeply, the forgiveness of my sins and a brand new life. Paul says it like this, For I am not ashamed 
of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. For everyone who believes, first to the Jews and then to everybody else. May we never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the expression of the power of God to save whoever believes. Let's pray.